Well, I'm so delighted you're here to worship with us this weekend. And uh, if you have a Bible, I'm going to be in two passages in Galatians, Book of Galatians. We're going to pan our way through. So you get, get a bookmarker stuck there, and then you want to open it to Romans chapter 7. We'll pick up some verses there. The series, we're in part number four. Grace, it really is amazing, is what we're calling this series. And we learned in week number one that it really is amazing grace. Week number two, we learned that we're still amazed by it. It's not just saving grace, the fact that he pulls us out of the pit and prepares us for heaven, but it's sustaining kind of grace, grace for life. Every day of our lives, we need grace. And uh, I'm just, I'm reminded, I was, actually, this is my pride moment, I'll tell you right now. I was in traffic this week, and I pulled up to a stoplight, and I stopped. I get points for that, because I've seen how some of you drive. But anyway, I stopped, not trying to be a Pharisee here, but I was obeying the law. And then the light turns green, and as it turns green, someone's turning right out of that other lane, you know? And dang it, they just had to pull out. But I let them out. I let them turn, and I let them go. And I actually waved, gestured kindly. Not like, but like, hey, yeah, take the spot. I was so glad I did, because as I went to tailgate them to let them know they're in my spot, I actually saw they had a South Potomac bumper sticker. (laughs) Which then really ticked me off, because then I can't speed and go past them, because they would know it was me. So, yeah, be careful, Jesus is watching, and other people. But... That's the amazing part about grace. It isn't just grace towards heaven, and it is that, but it's grace for daily living because we need that, right? Amen? And then we also need grace, in a a sense, we need not only sustaining grace, but we need to know that you can't get enough of it. Your body, your life, your emotions, your soul, your spirit can always take more grace. And so you can't overdo grace. And if you think you can, you just don't know just how deep and wide it's the love of the Lord towards us. You don't realize how good he's been with us. And so we just take in all the grace that he provides. Today I want to talk about why it is that there are grace killers out there and what kills grace. And when, I, when we leave today, I want us to be the people who foster a spirit of grace within ourselves, but then with other people as well. Uh, because sometimes grace just gets killed, gets stopped cold. When we read in the Bible, like in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace we're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's the gift of God. He just hands it out to you. He gives to you the gift of grace, which is Jesus Christ, who died on the cross, paid for our sins, was buried, rose again, and that's the message, the good grace of God towards us. That's his favor. That's what what grace means. Unmerited favor towards us. And so he graces us, with this gift of eternal life. All you do is receive it like you do a gift. How do you receive it? Just simply by faith. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, just believe in him, you'll have eternal life. You'll be forgiven of your sin. That's John 3, 16 and verses 16 and 17. But, But so what kills it? What really kills grace? Why is it that when you go into culture, you go down the street and we talk about Christians or people who attend church or whatever, why is it that people don't view Christians particularly as grace-filled people? Oh, because when grace started, when it came down from heaven, it started out, it was pretty clean. I understand that. When it came down, when, when love comes down from heaven in the form of Jesus, it comes down pure and holy and righteous, and it's, everything about it, it's good. Something happened, and what happened was it got in touch with humans, and we have a way, sorry, but of messing it up, Right? We, we confuse it and twist it and mangle it. And, and so now it's kind of a polluted grace. And we, you want that to be pure grace. So what I want us to do today is understand what polluted it, how to keep it pure, how to keep it clean, so we're not foolish about it. We're in Romans chapter um, 7. If you have a Bible, go with me there. And understand this. Before Christ came to earth, he really came, uh, he, he really outlined for us what right and wrong was, and that's called the Old Testament. And that gave to us our need for the Savior, so we saw our great need. Romans chapter 7 is where I am. And um, by the way, if you've not listened to the other messages, you need to go back, you can get online, just go to southpotomac.org and go to resources. You can pop down and get the messages. And um, you can listen to them there. And, and the reason I say that is this. 
because what I just summarized in two minutes, I, is there's a couple hours of material out there that will kind of unpack a bunch more of that for you, and it would help you if, you if you aren't caught up to it. And in particular, if you're on vacation, then the messages then get launched on Monday the following, so just pick it up so you don't miss out on a piece, because we want you to have it all. Uh, Romans chapter 7 is where we are this morning, and let's pick it up at verse 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Stop there. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? No, the law isn't sinful. The law just points out our sin. You get the difference? We just, you know, you, you, there's something wrong with your life. We don't want to hear that, right? Yeah. I, I'm, so I'll go somewhere else. I'll do something else. Why? Because they don't like what the law says. Is the law wrong? No, the law is right. The law is good, actually. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. For what I would have not have known what was coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Have you ever heard that, done that before? You realize, oh, that's a sin. Now you see it everywhere. It, it's, it's just popping up everywhere. When you realize, I shouldn't covet. Now I, I covet. I, I find myself wanting certain things or other things that, that aren't mine. And I'm never satisfied. Well, I'm aware of that because there's a rule against it. Pick up at verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covenant. In other words, it just got worse. The more I knew the law, the worse it got. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I, I didn't know it was wrong. So it was dead to me. And this is the real benefit of the law. It really sets the standard for good. It lets me know what right and wrong is, and I'm offending a holy God, but really what it does is it brings me to the need of divine help. I, you know, it's, it's that point where I, I desperately need help. Okay, so we've, we've done this before, and here's the chart. We've, we've had this chart before, um, and some of you write notes, and you, you wonder where did he go to school for art because it's amazing. <laughs> the skill is just amazing. Here's the cross of Christ. This is the turning point in all of history. All of that prior to this is what we call Old Testament, where we get, for the most part, we get Old Testament law, which is where God gave to us the Ten Commandments, and he tells us right from wrong, tells us what's good and bad, what's up from down, and, and we know, but what we really know is we can't abide by all the laws. And so what that does is it's, it brings us to the point, and that's where the prophets were the last few hundred years before Jesus came. They were all looking forward to this Messiah, this Savior of the world. And, and they were all looking forward to a Savior. They didn't know what he'd be like, but they knew someone would come from the little village of Bethlehem. They knew he'd be born of a virgin. They knew certain things about him, but they desperately knew they needed a Savior and a King. And then Christ came. And he gives to us grace, the Bible says, and truth. He tells us the truth about our lives, but he's gracious about it. He says, you're in trouble and you're a sinner, but I do not condemn you. It, it, it happens over and over again, but you, in one of the stories, they, some people caught a woman caught in adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and they say, what are you going to do? Are you going to let her go? going to be gracious? Or are you going to stone her to death? And Jesus, in his own mind, is doing what you're doing in your own mind. How do you catch one person in the act of adultery? Doesn't there have to be two? I'm just thinking here, you know. So that's obviously a setup, is it not? They've obviously, this is entrapment on the part of the woman. And he says to that woman, he says, okay, you can stone her, but whoever doesn't sin throws the first stone. <laughs> and you know what? He knew he was the only one in the room that had no sin, and he had no stones. And so he says to the woman, I don't condemn you. Now, go and sin no more. Don't, don't sin, but I don't condemn you. See? Some of us in the room right here say, I, I'm trying not to sin, but I still feel condemned. And if Jesus were in the room, do you know what he'd say to you? I don't condemn you. John 3, 17, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world. See the difference? I'm not here to knock you down, I'm here to lift you up. And that's what he does. And now, from that point forward now, we have what we call the New Testament. These are all the letters written to the New Testament church and churches like ours ever since. And this is the period that we call Grace. And we see this incredible need that we have for the Savior. It's a good thing. And, and there is now, now that we know Christ, we're standing in this stand of grace, there is no condemnation. Look with me at chapter 8. Skip over to chapter 8, verse 1. 
And this is a passage well worth memorizing if you're inclined to take anything to heart. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Jesus, or Christ Jesus. Because Christ, uh, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Stop there. There is no more condemnation. Get that. Old hymn writes it this way. No condemnation now I dread. Isn't that good? I, the Savior is mine. I am his and he is mine. There is therefore now no condemnation. Why? Because we're in Christ Jesus when you come in personal faith. Because what Christ did is he set us free from the law of sin and death. For what? Verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do and it was weakened by the flesh. Flesh could never keep up with the law. It could never make it perfect. By, by uh, working the works of the flesh. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be the sin offering. So he, he becomes the sin offering. He takes on us. 2 Corinthians 5, he takes on, uh, on us and he takes all of our sin and he gives us all of his righteousness. It's a really huge exchange that is total grace to think about it. So what I see here are really three things happening in the passage. There's no more condemnation, but I also see that he sets me free from the law of sin. And then the third thing that I see is God offers his son as a sin offering. So this being the case, work this backwards. Since he offers his son as a sin offering, and, and the payment for that sin is, is finalized, it's done, then I'm free. I don't owe anything. The, the tab is done. The tab comes out to zero. Therefore, emotionally, how should I feel? Verse 1, there's no more condemnation. I'm set free. It should be freeing to us. So why doesn't that happen? Why don't Christians feel free? If there is no more condemnation, if I am set free, if the payment is made, why, why are Christians miserable? Why do we feel so bad about ourselves? Why are Christians so unsure, and why are they confused about the faith? Why, when you describe Christians, are Christians described sometimes as stiff-necked, bull-headed, prideful, self-righteous? You say, it sounds like my family reunion right there. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Why is that? C.S. Uh, uh, Lewis Johnson, a professor from Dallas Theological Seminary, put it this way, that people who are caught in this thing called legalism, in other words, they still want to believe in Jesus, but they still want to do works of the law, those people are called legalists, okay? And that's really the distinction. And he says, those people... Uh, we talked about this a week ago. You're on a path of grace, maybe two weeks ago. And, and on this side, there's legalism where you could fall off, and then there's license over here. In other words, you can't tell me what to do. And either one of those is a ditch. But in particular, S. Lewis Johnson writes this, that when Christians get off of the track onto the side of legalism, it is cramped, it is sober, it is dull, it is a listless kind of Christianity. Some scholars actually believe it may very well be the major enemy of the church today. And you want to be growing in your faith, you want to be challenging each other, but there is there a need for a legalistic kind of mean-spiritedness about us? And the scriptures say no, but the spirit of Christ even more emphatically says no. It's uncalled for. Now, if you're in Romans, turn with me to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. What we're going to find in Galatians is this. Galatians is a letter written to the church in Gaul. Gaul is an area of Europe we know as modern-day Turkey. Okay, So just think of Turkey today, Istanbul or something. Okay, Think of Turkey, and that's the land of Gaul. It's the northeast side of the Mediterranean Sea. And that region, uh, after Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross, paid for our sins, was buried and rose again. He went back to heaven, and the church began, and through a miracle, which is another whole story, a guy by the name of Paul becomes a believer in Jesus, and he will go to the land of Gaul, and he'll start some churches, and those churches will start other house churches in the region. And that's why we call it the letter to Galatians. It's to the church that's in Gaul, okay? Or the churches in Gaul. Now, here's what happened. 
the church, when it starts, is, go back to start one, when Jesus comes, he comes to his own, John chapter 1 says, Jewish people and his own don't receive him. Jesus is Jewish. And the initial church that starts is in Israel. It's a very, very Jewish church. And when the good news spreads, now it's going into Gentile, non-Jewish territories. And what happened was the Apostle Paul starts some churches, and they're very Jewish. Now they're in non-Jewish areas. And some Jews came back after the Apostle Paul left. And when they went, they said, you know, it's really good that you believe in Jesus Christ and you believe in his grace, and they're right here in history lines, but you also need to believe in bits of the law. You need to practice bits of the law, or maybe the whole law, because they're still Jewish, and they want you to carry that stuff over. And why would they do that? They would do that because that's what they're familiar with, that's what their culture is, that's what their belief system is, but mostly it's just because it's what they've always done. Okay? So they think, okay, you Gentiles, it's okay for you to come to Christ, but when you come, you need to do what we do. You need to act the way we act, and sing the songs we sing, and eat the foods we eat. And in particular, there's one practice that was very, very Jewish that no one else practiced at the time, a thing called circumcision. When Abraham got called by God to start this new nation and this new land, and he says, I'm going to set you apart, I'm going to make you distinct. And he says, and all the guys will be circumcised. And I am not Abraham, and I'm not inside his head, but I'm thinking to myself, if I were Abraham, I'd be saying... You know, Noah got a, a rainbow. C could I have a rainbow? S something about that, but that didn't work. Glad we got that out of the way. So, I, these guys are saying, you can come and you can be part of the church, but you need to be circumcised like the rest of the Jews. And they're saying, there is no way. Ugh. Okay, you understand now, don't you? It was the opportunity for 100 guys to go, amen. But that pass, that's gone now. It's gone, guys. You see, legalism, let's go to the legalism, liberty in Christ chart. Can we move to that one? It, it is condemning by its very nature. It is bound and restricted. It says you must do or you can't. And, and you know what? In the Christian life, there are things you should always tell the truth. When, when given the opportunity to be kind or be mean, you should always be kind. Um, whenever I, yeah, you have the opportunity to be more patient, always err to the side of patience. Those are biblical, and I can get you those from New Testament epistles. You know, all throughout the church, you see illustrations of that as well as the teaching didactically and illustratively. So that's not the issue. The issue is, when people add other rules to Christianity and say you have to fill in the blanks, you have to go be in the box like we are, you, and, and if you don't, we will never be satisfied, and we will always drive you. We will always, because it's our agenda, because it's, it's extremely selfish, quite frankly. There, you're never satisfied. It's always performance-driven. And by the way, it's performance-driven because there's a pride issue at hand. The Jews are saying right here, you can come into our church. And you know, you know what they're saying? The word our is really it, right? Our church. It'll always be our church because don't ever forget Jesus was a Jew and you will never be. Even if you do follow, eat our foods, listen to our music, become circumcised, you'll always be an outsider. And, and they're very territorial. It's a them and us kind of a thing. And so... That is a stench in, in the nostrils of the Lord. It is just not at all what, what the Lord would be in favor of. Now, you're in Galatians chapter 1. Let's pick up in verse 6. Verses 1 to 5, it's, hi, how are you? It's good to meet you in the name of the Lord. It's five verses. It's the first, like, minute, okay? And his very next paragraph, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who's called you. He goes right to the point. I cannot believe what I am hearing. This is, all right, for a moment, this is the mother who calls her son who's in college. Hi, how's it going? Yeah, good. I just heard on the news your school is doing, you know, and are you involved in that? You know, and you just, mom, mom, please, let me turn you off the speaker. Yeah. I am so astonished, he says. I cannot believe this that you would be so easily distracted from the gospel. 
the one who called you to live by the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Get, now, you have to get the words, because in ancient language, he's saying it's the same as, no, he's saying it's another gospel of a different kind, which is really, verse 7, no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion or trying to pervert the gospel. Some people are throwing you into conversion, in con confusion. They are perverting it. They're polluting it. It's not helping you at all. It is not the gospel. Verse 8, but even if an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, the one preached to you, let him be accursed. It's pretty strong language. This is pretty serious stuff. So when the Apostle Paul writes, understand this, the Apostle Paul is an attorney who comes to Christ himself, a smart guy, and yet he hears what's happening. This is a very emotional letter. And by the way, if you're thinking about, well, when was Galatians even written? It was the, one of the earliest, some scholars even believe, the earliest New Testament epistle written. It was written maybe around 50 AD. So not long after Jesus rose from the dead, this letter was written. And the point being is this. This was an issue that we would pollute the gospel and make it stiff-necked, boxed in, exclusive, a club for only a few. That was an issue then. And it's still an issue today, 2,000 years later. Um, and how do I know that? I know that because churches even will become exclusive, like club-only kind of places. You know what? In the corporate world, it's called branding. And when, when companies brand, what they do is they, they want to sell you a product, but they want to sell you not just on the product. They want to sell you on the brand of their product, so you'll buy others of their things within their products to get their and then more loyalty to them. And then what they'll do is then they'll change their parts so no other parts fit their products. So then when you go to get replacement parts, you have to buy their parts. And then you want to make the match, finish match, whether it's the living room furniture or your appliances or the way your dashboard fits in your car. It doesn't matter what it is or how it is. or It doesn't matter what the consumable item is. They're all about branding to get you to buy from them again. So one sale turns into three and then they have you coming back in with replacement parts. And I'm not against all that. I'm a, I'm a strong, I don't know why I call myself, Christian capitalist with bits of socialism mixed. I don't know what that is. I have no idea. I make money and then give it away. I have no idea what that is. I got, it's called compassion. I, never mind. Just thought that through. <laughs> so I, I'm all in favor of businesses making money. It's okay. Not a problem. It's a real problem when churches do it, though. Let me, let me tell you why. Because churches then will say, well, you're not our brand of Christianity because our brand will do thus and such and we have a history of here and there and all these other churches, they, you know, they kind of have the truth but they don't really have the truth. There's one problem with that. It, that's heresy. It's wrong. Titus put it this way. This faith that we possess, that we, we embrace is called, these are the words, Titus 1. It is a common faith. It is for all people. John 17, when Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer, right before he died upon the cross, what did he pray? That the church in worldwide, in all generations, would be one. In other words, there'd be, no, there'd be no separation. That There would just be the church. Just get along with each other. Galatians chapter 6, you're called to be a family. It's in a relationship, not a bunch of exclusive rights. Now, let me tell you about how this, I know this happens in churches all the time, where, where people believe it has to be their way or no way at all. And I heard about this one church. It's a good church, good pastor, good staff. I mean, lots of good things. There was a kid in the youth group, a young, young guy, and a good guy, good kid, trusted Jesus as his Savior, wanted to follow the Lord in faith. I mean, he's a good, good young man. But... The youth group at the church where he was attending, uh, they had summer activities, but they didn't have a mission project going anywhere that was going to go overseas, and he wanted to get some experience to that. And so he decided he's going to go over to this other church and go on their missions team to wherever overseas. And as they were making that plan, he said, I'm going to sign up, I had to raise some money and do that. Well, then he went back and he told his youth pastor, hey, I, I'm involved here, and he was active in the youth group at, ch at that church. But that was kind of, that church had tones of legalism, not overtly, just, just subtle tones of it, and not everywhere, but just bits of it, okay? And, 
And when he told the youth pastor, hey, I'm going to go to this other church and be on their missions project, the youth pastor said, you can't do that. You, you go to this church. He said, but I'm just going to be gone for like two weeks. That's all. He goes, yeah, but you're involved here. You should do the work here. You should serve here. And the youth pastor was right. He should serve here. But what would it have hurt for him to serve over there too? Wouldn't have hurt a thing. Well, that young man said, well, I'm going to go. And that youth pastor said, we don't, we're not sending you with our blessing. It's, you go on your own then. And he let that kid go, and the kid went off on the missions trip. And I, I think about that even today, about how, uh, not just colloquial, but, but how stuffed, how boxed, how limited, how insecure uh, that ministry was, because it missed out on blessing a kid that could have done other ministry. And I tell you that to say this, it, it can happen even in the best of places, with the best of people. But it begs the question, because could that bite you and me? Sure it could. Well, Galatians, you're in chapter one. Let's go turn the page to chapter two. We have to keep moving. Verse 14. When I saw they're not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, and in front of all of them, you act like a Jew, you live like a Gentile, you, and not like a Jew, how is it then you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He's saying, Peter, what's going on here? This is not sensitivity to the needs of others. This is not what that is. What Peter's doing is, he's playing both sides, knowing I could, when I'm around the, the law guys, I'll be law. When I'm around the grace guys, I'll be grace. Paul's saying, Peter, your arms aren't that wide. When you're with the Jewish guys and I see you around for a day, I smell fish on your breath. When you've been with the Gentiles, I smell bacon. <laughs> What's going on here, dude? You can't have it both ways. In case you don't know, Jews don't eat bacon. And I just want to let you know, if you eat bacon, that's all right with me. You don't have to get permission and if you don't eat bacon, that's all right with me. Just pass it my way. Oh, no. Okay. Never mind. But that's the kind of silly divisiveness that gets us in trouble. You see that? It's just like crazy. Like, why, why does that even happen? Okay, verse 15. We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. In other words... Peter, you know this. We know this. We can't obey the law. Even the good guys can't do this. It only is going to happen by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Why? Because by the works of the law, no one's going to get justified. No one's going to be declared right. You just you can't do it. It's not going to work. So you have to decide, Peter. It's, it's, it's just sickening that there's that kind of divisiveness even within chapter 3. You foolish Galatians. This is emotive. By the way, people who think the Bible is lofty and poetic and doesn't really say what it thinks and what it means, has never read Galatians. It puts me to sleep. You foolish Galatians. You can't get any more clear than that. This is worse than ignorant. These people knew better. Who has bewitched you? Stop there. Ancient manuscripts, some, of, some translations actually say, who gave you the evil eye? Have you ever had the evil eye? Anybody given you the stink eye before? Like, like that. And they actually do it, not only with the eye, but they do it with their lip too. The lip comes down, because you can't do that eye without doing the lip. Try doing it sometime. Go in the bathroom, shut the door, and try. Twitter me that. Some of you are going, you can do that? Yeah, but I'll, I'll never see it because I don't ever check. So, I'm a free man. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? In other words, who has hypnotized you? Who's given you the eye? Who has hypnotized you and such? You'll just follow anything they say. Because they're saying right now, take, 
all this law and take all this grace, mix a little bit, and you got this new, very Jewish church. He's saying, that never got us right with God before. Why would we want to carry it in and pollute the goodness and, and this washed clean, no condemnation that we have in Christ? Why would we want to pollute it with stuff that we know doesn't work? It's just stuffing. It's sawdust. You foolish Galatians. Verse 3. Are you so foolish after beginning by the means of the Spirit, you're now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Sorry, but are you that dumb? This started with the Spirit. It's going to have to continue with the Spirit. Verse chapter 4, verse 17. Turn the page once more. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want to do is alienate. You get this? They want to create a them and an us. They want to alienate you from us. Get that? Anytime you hear that, people are boxing in Christianity. They're trying to separate. They're trying to create teams. They're trying to create some kind of competition. They're trying to alienate. So you may have zeal for them. Okay? That's an unwholesome kind of a godlessness. Now, now I'll be honest with you, church. I'm not afraid of us being theologically uh, legalist, I don't think that's going to happen. I, I think here's the danger. I think it's, it's a cultural thing. Because I think you and I could be culturally legalists and not even realize it's happening. Okay? Let me explain what I mean. Once again, there's the cross of Christ. You come to Christ. This is you or me, and we come in personal faith. Right? We are saved by grace through faith, and we know that. But along the way, in our growth, there are certain habits that come our way. And it may be time with God alone, and you may have time every morning with the Lord, or every night, you're a night person. Or you listen to certain music, or you do certain things, and that helps you. There are certain things that you just love about the Christian life that help you grow, and those things become your personal convictions. And those things might be everything from entertainment. For some people in the room, you don't watch soap operas. Why? Because they make you not love your spouse like you want. It, it occurred to me once when a woman walked up to me and said, you know those are fake. I go, I don't watch them, but why would you say they're fake? Well, look at the guy. He comes home from work clean shaven with flowers every night. That's not real. And I said, it's not? It's not. It's not the way most people live. So some people have to give up certain things. That, that doesn't mean everybody has to. It just means you have to. If that's your issue, if that's your problem, then that's your faith, it's your deal, see? But because of that, what happens is these convictions that be, you become familiar with, and that becomes your culture. It becomes very familiar to you. And then all this becomes part of your Christian culture. And that's okay, because that's how you, as the epistles would say, that's how you work out your salvation, I'll tell you this, the songs that we sing, uh, Grace Wins Every Time, I, that's a song I love, and I asked for it to sing it on this series, and uh, we sang Good, Good Father, I asked Ernest, could we do that one? I, I love that song, but, but I like it with a ska band. I mean, I, I think there's, you know, there's, there's, some bands are smooth and easy, I, I like some other stuff, and sometimes when I worship, I worship with other instruments. Other musical sets, you're saying, you're scaring me, Dave. This is getting off track. Yeah. That's, but whatever you do, that's what you do in your own particular worship. It's okay for you. Okay? Now, here's where it gets confusing. Someone in your family or, or a coworker, or someone close to you, you help them come to Christ. And so this is a new believer over here. And you help them come to Christ, and they're, they're now following the Lord. And, and you're going to help them follow the Lord, but here's the problem. If you mandate on them what you do, instead of leading them to Jesus, guess what they're going to do? They're not going to go to Jesus. You know what they're going to do? They're going to go here. And then when it doesn't work, because it's not them, they're going to give up on Christianity. Do you know why? Because they're going to say, I tried it, it didn't work. But they didn't try Jesus. They tried your culture. Do you see the difference? And that becomes a false God in and of itself. If we're not careful. You're saying, well, I, oh, I think I may have done that. Well, here's what you do. 
You say, I'll help you get to Jesus, and I will give to you, I'll show you what I do, but you need to figure it out yourself. Why? That way it's your faith. It's your Savior. Okay? I, I hate it. I'm, I'll be in town, and some of, some of you, and you're, you're the best people in the world, but I'll see you out somewhere when we're shopping, and you'll introduce me to a friend, and you'll say, I go to his church. You know what I say? It's not my church. I, number one, I don't want to get blamed for the stuff that you do. <laughs> not my church. I heard people say that too. You know, so-and-so goes to your church. They're a criminal. I go, yeah, we let anybody in. We let anybody in. You might feel at home. That's what I tell them. They even let me come. I don't even like it when they say, your church. Because I say, you know, it's not my church. It's Jesus' church. We just get to be a part of it. It's not my church. So you've heard me. If you've ever done that before, you've heard me correct you in public because I don't want the glory. I don't want the burden of it either or the responsibility. I certainly cannot carry it. I do know this. If, if you'll just point them to Jesus and say, this worked for me, you work it out on your own, and I'll coach you, but it needs to be your faith. Then you're culturally helping them develop their own culture and it will help you immensely. It will free you. And then what they'll really have is genuine Christianity, not some fake version that's hollow. By the way, um, good Christian homes that are legalistic and have a strong sense of culture, the teenagers oftentimes leave the faith. Do you know why? Because they never connected to Jesus. Okay? All they did was connect to the trappings. Okay, and, and so what will happen is sometimes you just have to tear that down and rework that. I, I, I'm telling you this because it is so, so subtle. Um, I'm reminded of a story that actually Charles Swindoll, a radio pastor, you know him, uh, president of Dallas Theological Seminary, now emeritus uh, chancellor and um, author, pro- prolific author. He writes and he tells this story of a mission family, and this mission family went overseas to serve the Lord and help plant churches, and they came home never to go back, and when they asked, why aren't you going back, they said, "Um, one reason, peanut butter. He said, what? He said, yeah, peanut butter. He said, we got there, and where we were living, which is not uncommon, where we got there, there was no peanut butter. So they wrote family members, and they said, what, you know, what do you want? And, uh, can we say anything? Yeah, we don't have any peanut butter. Just send some peanut butter. So they sent a case of peanut butter. So these people had it in their home uh, overseas, and another mission family walked in and said, yeah, this, this country doesn't have peanut butter. You can't have peanut butter. Well, just because they don't have it doesn't mean I can't have it. I, you know, it's, and I paid for it. It's my peanut butter. You can't have it. Okay, when I signed up to do overseas mission work, there was nothing in the contract about peanut butter. <laughs> and it became a point of issue among the missionaries. It became so hostile that the mission family left the field to come back to the States. And it, 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 and it wasn't the peanut butter. It was the fact that they wouldn't be accepted because of some foolish rule. Now, right now, and then Swindoll says this, you, you laugh because it's peanut butter, but would you laugh if we took peanut butter out and put beer and wine in or, or something else? And for some of you, you defend your right to have a beer, and my concern is if that's what you're thinking about all the time, then that, that's telling me something I'm, that's not happy. There may be an addiction issue. And if you are dry and you say, I don't ever drink, I don't ever plan to, then that's another issue. You may be the Pharisee. Do you understand how delicate this is? Um, there's an author and a, uh, a guy by the name of John Piper who's written some extraordinarily great books. I don't read a lot of them because he's so thorough. All right, he's OCD, okay? He's just, he spends 100 pages. You have to read 100 pages to get a point. I, so I, I can't read that much. I'll go blind, you know, by the time I get done. So I don't read tons of them, but I'm reading, and then I listen to him once, and he's so thorough, he says, I don't drink. Do you know why I don't drink? Because I'm compulsive. Well, we knew that, John, because it takes 100 pages for you to make one point. 
He goes, no, you don't understand. He says, I don't drink at all because I wouldn't stop. And then he tells the story about being in the car with his assistant, John Crabtree. And I'm going, you know what? I think I know what he's talking about. He says, we could be driving somewhere with John, and John could be driving, and I would be in the passenger side, and if on, on the dash is a pack of gum, he said, I will not stop till I go through every single piece. Any other compulsive gum chores here? Yeah. Yeah. You don't stop till we're done. You know what? John said, I cannot drink because I would not stop till the bottle is gone, till the case is gone. Because he's that thorough. He just keeps at it. So he just knows I can't ever drink. Other stuff, you just say, it doesn't bother me. Don't make it a rule. Just leave it alone. Why is it that in my discipline of the faith, what I do is what I do. But I don't have to indoctrinate that to you. That's my preference. It's what I do. And, and it, doesn't, it, it doesn't have to be that we all do the same thing. Everyone needs to work out their own faith. I hope you get this. I'm reminded of a long time ago, long far away. <laughs> I still laugh at this. Uh, there's a guy, uh, I was pastoring a church and um, every teenager in this church I pastored, every teenager had a tobacco patch. And it was three acres of tobacco. And every teenager in the church drove a new car or truck because of the money they made on tobacco. I mean, it was lucrative. But we don't like tobacco. We're against tobacco. So I, I'm driving down this country road, and I see a guy from the church. He's in the front yard with a lawn hose washing down a tree, and he's got a cigarette in his hand. I pull in the drive. He put the cigarette in his pocket. <laughs> I'm going, this could be good. <laughs> this could be good. See, I have sin issues you know not of. I don't smoke. I don't care if you do or not. I just don't. But I thought, you know, I'm going to wait and see what the pocket smokes. <laughs> you take that out of your pocket. He goes, what? I said, um, cigarette. I know. I saw it. It's okay. Right. I'm not going to tell anybody. Like no one knew. You know. I was in a hospital room, and, and uh, there's a lady in the church who was a nasty old lady. She was born old and nasty. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? She complained about everything. She complained about all the previous pastors, so I knew I had the honor of being the next one to be complained about because I was there. So I would just take it, you know. One time I went to see her at the hospital, and she wouldn't die. She'd just get sick, but never die. <laughs> just kept, I felt sorry for her husband. So, so I walked in one time. I stand at the foot of her bed. She's on the phone. And my pastor never comes to see me. I'm standing here. Don't talk about me. I'm right here. And then she says, he's here, I have to go now. And I, Tell her I, it's me, the pastor. I met her son. And I had, he lived like 10 states away. He never came home. And we wonder why. And I met her son. And I knew, I didn't know the son, but all I'd ever heard about the son was, his marriage will never make it. His marriage will never make it. We don't like her. His marriage will never make it. Hey, good to meet you. How long have you been married? 35 years. <laughs> 35 years. I said, she told me. And he went, yeah, my marriage will never make it. And then you know what he said? She's been telling me that for 35 years. And we wonder why, you know, people just don't think Christians are all that great of people. Just, just crazy. I knew that guy smoked. He didn't know that I knew that he smoked, but I knew he smoked. We leave after trying to minister to his mother, and I mean, we are stressed out. He's ready to smoke, I'm ready to drink. I don't, <laughs> we don't do either. We're walking down the hall, and he's like, I, 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 what do I gotta do? This was back in the day when hospitals had smoking rooms. I said, if you go down this hall and go down the emergency room, I'll bet you might find a smoking room down there. He said, you think I, it was like, you think I need, you need a smoke. Trust me. <laughs> if this one doesn't kill you, maybe the next one will. But, and I'm not recommending that you do that. What I'm telling you is this. I want to love the sinner, and so should you. But I don't have to just hate your sin. You know what I have to hate? 
I have to hate my sin. I don't have to hate your sin. I need to love the sinner. And you know, how, you know the phrase, love the sinner, hate the sin? Yeah, it's true. But what if we love the sinner and then worked on our own sin? I mean, think about it. All right, four points and a story, and we're going to close. Ready? Here they are. Galatians 5. Four conclusions. Chapter 5, verse 1. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm. What's the conclusion? Stand firm in the freedom. When people want to pollute the message of grace, don't call them into account. Just don't let that happen. Fight for, for grace. Fight for the spiritual freedom that you have. Don't give up on that. Okay? Number two, chapter 5, verse 7. You're running a good race. Who cut in on you to keep you from obeying the truth? Don't let people cut in on you. Don't let other people control your spiritual life. It's a delicate balance because you want friends, you want influence for good, but don't let them pollute your faith. Don't let them get you off track. Don't let them manipulate you. Don't let them do that. You work out your own faith. Number three, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature of the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. You use the freedom that you have not to go do what you want, but you use the freedom that you have to make the world a better place. So don't be fooled not only by the, what others might do, but don't be fooled by what you might think you could or should do. Don't be fooled by your own impulsivities. Serve one another in love. And then number four, stop trying to please everyone. Just work at pleasing the Lord. Verse 20. So I say, walk in the spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. There they are. All right, we're going to pray in a moment before we do. I want to go back to that story of the church with the mild, not lethal, but a mild version of legalism. And I want to tell you that's a good church with good staff. And I know that church really well. And right now you're saying, you were that kid in the youth group. Unfortunately, no, I wasn't. In that story, it's me. I was the youth pastor. I was the youth pastor. And as the Lord would have it, and the the Lord doesn't like to speak to me in an audible voice, but I came to realize over time, the, the Lord impressing upon my heart, you cannot control every kid in the youth group nor should you. You should be setting them free to to help them grow in the Lord and when they want to do good, let them do good. He's not going overseas to market illegal drugs. He's going overseas to market VBS materials. So let him go. And, And God doesn't just bless just what I'm doing or what's in our four walls. The ministry of the kingdom is way larger than what we're doing. And the Lord really worked in my heart that way, and I am so grateful that he did. I tell you that story because, well, that young fellow went on the missions trip, and the next year he graduated from high school, and the next year he went away to Bible college. And of all things, he wanted to be a youth pastor after what I did to him. He came back from college, bopped his head in my office, and he said, hey, I said, hey, come in, sit down. He sat down. We chatted for a little bit, asked about classes. How's he doing? He's doing great. And I said to him, remember that conversation we had a couple years ago where I said, I didn't think that was a good idea? He said, yeah, you told me not to go. I said, okay, okay. <laughs> trying to confess here, dude. I said, I was, I was wrong. I'm sorry. And he said, uh, no, I was wrong. He said, I should have listened to you. You're, you're my pastor. I should have listened to you. I said, no, no, I was wrong. Trying to control you or thinking that I have to be in charge of everything about your life. I don't have to be. And he said, well, I was at a point in my life where you couldn't tell me what to do no matter what. You know how that is, a senior in high school. You couldn't tell me what to do anyway. Now, here's what I knew. I, I knew something that he never let on. I knew he had a girlfriend in that other church youth group. And there's a fair chance if she's gone two weeks, she wouldn't be his girlfriend when he got back, when she got back. So he wanted to go defend his turf. I, I knew what was going on. Not dumb, as people think. 
I tell you that to say this. There's hope for legalists to recover. There's hope for you. There's hope for me. And, and if you will allow the truth of how good grace really is, you won't try to box it. You'll just be like handing it out, knowing that there's a never-ending supply of it, just like there is forgiveness and mercy and love. And when that happens, you don't have to worry about grace killing anything. It'll be a crop, a harvest of graciousness in your life and in the community where you live. All right, let's bow for prayer, and let's stand as we pray. And I'm going to pray in just a a moment, but before I do, our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed. You may need to trust Christ where you are. Just right this morning, just uh, open your heart to him and tell him, "I, I need the Savior. He promises to come in your life, take over, and change your life radically if you'll allow him. It all begins when you believe. If you need to pray with somebody, uh, Jerry and Shirley are up front on the left-hand side, and they'd be happy to pray with you. They'd be honored to pray with you over any issue, coming to Christ, lordship of, the, of Christ, coming back to the Lord, rededicating your life, or maybe you're up for a job change or um, a, a life decision. Your kids are driving you crazy or your parents are driving you crazy. Whatever it is, just whatever it is, you, you come up and give them a sentence and they'll, they'll be honored to pray. And now, dear Father, we, we echo the words of the song, Grace Wins Every Time. We know when we pick that side, we cannot lose. And so make us the people who pick that side every day of our lives, knowing that we have a good, good Father who's in heaven who loves us more than we can, we can take in. We're overwhelmed by it. And may we in our lives uh, uh, attend to the things that would kill off grace, ward them off early, and may there be a harvest of gracious righteousness for the glory of the one who saved us. We pray this in Jesus' name. The church would say, amen? Amen. amen.